This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. This is Mornings with Simi. Places like California, countries like Austria uh, and Italy even are starting to take some measures that will ease the lockdown that they have been under. Where else is that happening? In Denmark, actually. They're getting ready to send younger children, like primary school age children, back to school. But how is that going to look? Well, joining us now to talk more about that and what might be a preview for us as well is Shane Woodford, our freelancer in Denmark, former CKNW reporter. Hi, Shane. Good morning, Simi. How are you? Good, thank you. Okay, so what is the plan? How is this going to work? Yeah, so it's going to be kids up to grade five only returning to school as of tomorrow. Uh, Everybody else still remains at home. All the other lockdown restrictions remain in place, including closed borders, until May 10th when there'll be a reassessment and a decision then on what to do. As far as schools tomorrow go, um, it is pretty strict stuff. So um, depending on how old the kid is, there's a spacing requirement. For instance, in nurseries, there has to be six square meters between the kids. You get up to daycares, it's four square meters. Uh, kids my son's age who are returning to school have to have two meters of space between them as they sit in classrooms. Uh, there are strict cleaning requirements. Everything inside the school has to be cleaned twice a day. Anything a kid touches has to be cleaned immediately after use. Uh, All of this is going to make for an interesting return to school. The spacing stuff alone, Simi, is going to be a huge challenge. I know that they're going to try and keep the kids outdoors as much as they can, uh, and that's fine when the weather's nice. Uh, But I'm already hearing that, especially in some of the bigger cities where there's obviously more density, like Copenhagen, that some of the schools are saying, listen, because of the spacing requirements, I mean, just in a pure how much room you have physically inside the school, they will not be able to take all the children back. I know some other schools have moved into larger venues like uh, museums that are currently closed, for example. Again, in Copenhagen, that's happening. Um, It's going to be a really, really interesting time. And then you throw in all the extra manpower to just do that massive amount of daily cleaning, uh, and it's going to make for an interesting situation. And then you add, okay, this is fine if we can make it work for the grade five, up to grade five kids. Mm-hmm. But then what happens next month, potentially, if Denmark says, okay, we're going to, uh, it's going well, we're going to open up for everybody. Now suddenly that space that was there, mm-hmm. like, you know, school for older children, for example, here in Fulbar where I live, um, my son's school, he's moving into uh, tomorrow. They're taking kids up to grade three, and they're taking their grade fours and fives and moving them into an older kid's school in the town, a separate place in a separate part of the city, because those kids are still at home. So they're using that space. But what happens when those children come back? So it's going to be, um, it's going to be a really challenging time. And then, of course, there's also some really unhappy parents here. So how did they get to this point then? What, how successful has the lockdown been in Denmark, Shane, to allow them to get to this? It's been, by most measures, pretty successful. Um, the amount of Danes in hospital has dec- uh, decreased pretty drastically from the height uh, of this thing. It was about just over 500. It's currently sitting around 300. The amount of Danes in intensive care continues to drop. There was a slight uptick today. Seven people uh, had to go on ventilator. That was an increase of seven people from yesterday. But that has been trending down over the last week as well. Um, by any measure, we seem to have a handle on it. But... There's lots of question marks there. So, I mean, this isn't a case of, okay, we've beat it, hurrah, everything goes back to normal. Mm-hmm. This is a case of, okay, we've, we've, you know, fought off the first wave, but we don't know what the future holds. The coronavirus, until there's a vaccine or some kind of, 
you know, uh, treatment to deal with it that's going to save lives, we have to deal with whatever the future holds. And there's real concern here in Denmark from parents that their kids are going to get infected at school or bring the infection home from school. Maybe there'll be an infected adult in the school, that kind of thing. And I know there's Facebook groups that have popped up here where they've gotten thousands of followers in a matter of days where parents are saying, you know, we don't want our kids to be guinea pigs in this whole thing. Um, the government's turning around and saying, listen, kids that age have about a 1.9% chance of getting the virus, and there's no recorded transmission of a child bringing the virus home and carrying it on to an adult. So, uh, but then again, you have to factor in this is the coronavirus. We, we don't know a lot about it, and we can't say for sure what it can and cannot do. So, um, yeah, it's really interesting times, yeah. and I think everybody's going to be watching Denmark to see how it unfolds over the next few weeks. Uh, and kind of, you know, judging where they may go from there. Right. Okay. And very quickly, Shane, what about next? What about Sweden? We know that they had kind of bucked the trend and done things their way. How are things going there? Well, they were going okay. Last uh, last Tuesday, one week ago today, they had their deadliest day, 114 people dead. Uh, and then they went into uh, six days of, you know, it was like, you know, 30, 40, 20 fatalities per day. And that's not something to laugh at by any measure. I mean, those are dead people, but... Uh, a significant decline. But today, uh, the first day back from a big long weekend, an Easter long weekend is, is a five-dayer here in Europe. Uh, you work a half-day Wednesday, and then you come back today. Uh, and they've recorded another 114 deaths. So part of me wonders how much of the decline over the last five to six days was a reporting lag. We knew they had an existing backlog anyway. Uh, and I wonder how much the Easter long weekend kind of added to the backlog. And I suspect that we'll see their numbers go up in, in the next few days. Oh, okay. So Shane, thank you. Always a pleasure, Simi. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, this COVID-19 economic impact has been felt by everyone and in every corner of every industry. It is touching there. But a few of those industries have been hit particularly hard. For instance, the tourism industry, right? Uh, the restaurant industry. We are talking hundreds of thousands of people and everybody just out of work. Well, on the federal side of things, on the political scene, the Conservative uh, Party is saying, listen, more needs to be done about that. So let's talk about that now with the uh, Shadow Minister for Small Business and the MP for Edmonton Centre, James Cumming, who joins us. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Thank you for having me. This must be a difficult time, too, because like the first instinct is you want everybody to get help, but there are some things that you think could also be done better. Sure. Yeah, and we're uh, we're appreciative of those things that uh, the government has moved on and uh, tried to help out people, but there's uh, a raft of businesses that have more or less been ignored in the process and, and are... Uh, are struggling uh, for sure at no fault of their own because their business has been shut down and it's not, it's not because they haven't performed well. It's not because they're not good entrepreneurs and business people. They just, uh, you know, this virus has uh, forced them to short down, shut down their uh, operations. So what is it when you look at what's been done so far, are there are areas that you think could have been improved, like what should have been done better? Sure. So particularly in the hospitality industry and uh, restaurants, bars, that sort of thing, they've, uh, it's fairly limited support. So there has been some wage support with the CERB, which is $2,000 a month if you're, a, if you're an entrepreneur that um, uh, hasn't necessarily been paying yourself a salary. Uh, so that gives some 
a bit of short-term help. Uh, there's a loan program, the emergency loan program, which is uh, you can borrow up to $40,000, and then after, uh, if you pay it back within two years, or December 31st of 2022, that $10,000 of it is forgivable, which I suppose you could put towards rent and utilities and some of the other things. And then there's been deferrals on, on um, in some cases, mortgages, interest, uh, utility payments, property taxes, depending upon the municipalities. And these deferrals are all great, but the problem is that these businesses, when they open, they'll their cash flow will wrap, ramp up probably fairly slowly, mm-hmm. and uh, they're going to have all these deferred payments that they're going to have, they're uh, forced to pay back which is going to put uh, even further stress on these businesses come whenever they're able to open again. So we proposed a couple alternatives, and one is to rebate the GST for the last year so that the, the, these businesses will at least have an injection of some cash, some cash flow into their accounts so they can pay some of those bills. So that's one of the options. And we've also suggested that uh, the loan program should be expanded. Uh, so if they can operate and even operate on a temporary basis and be part of the wage subsidy that's offered, uh, that the banks would be able to uh, loan that money to them until such time as the government is ready and prepared to start funding those wage subsidies. So is that something that is under discussion? I know that with that wage subsidy bill that the opposition had been consulted and worked on that. How much cooperation is there right now? Well, they, they, um, certainly we advocated to increase it from 10% to 75%. So we're very thankful that the government listened to the concerns of businesses and listened to the concerns of the opposition to increase that. So on, on that end, uh, there's been good cooperation. The problem is the time to getting these programs up and running and actually being effective. So on the wage subsidy, uh, this was announced um, uh, about a week and a half ago. Mm-hmm. And the government saying it will, from that point in time, it would be four to six weeks to have a portal open so you could apply. And then we're not sure how long it'll take for the approval process to take. And then once the approval process takes place, then if you have a direct deposit, uh, the money will finally flow into your account. So there's many businesses that will go through at least three or four pay cycles without a dime of support. And uh, that makes it very, very difficult for them to get through this difficult time. So that's why we proposed yesterday uh, that uh, the loan program should be expanded so that on an interim basis, the banks can provide some of that capital until the government provides those checks back into the account. Has there also been enough cooperation with the big banks? I know some of the banks have said, well, we don't know enough about this loan program and we don't know enough about what's going on. Have, have the big banks done enough, do you think? Well, I think the big banks are on a couple fronts. The program took a while for the loan program for them to understand what all the... Uh, the terms and conditions were because the the banks are really an agent of government on that program. So they were waiting for what, what the, the government wanted and how they wanted it set up. So I think that's relatively clear, but there's a bunch of exceptions within the loan program. For example, a small business that would have been declared, uh, their, 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 uh, the owners Mm -hmm. uh, are taking dividends and maybe it's a mom, pa shop 
and uh, they're declaring dividends, well, they may not make the threshold of the $50,000 minimum payroll. So the, the banks are acting on what they're being told to do, but in some cases, I think it, people are still falling through the, the cracks. Now, banks, we understand, have been speaking to landlords on a you know, one-on-one basis about deferrals on, on uh, potentially on principal and interest payments. But again, I come back to if they're, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to flow that through to their tenants. And so that discussion between the tenants and the landlords uh, has to take place. And there has to be some solutions that, right. uh, that we come up with so that they, they can still be in business when we finally lift the ban on these businesses. Yes, finally. We're looking forward to that. Uh, Mr. Cumming, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. That is James Cumming. He's the uh, CPC Shadow Minister for Small Business. He's also the MP for Edmonton Centre. Tough time for the opposition, right? When it's times like this is you want to find constructive things to say without just like, oh, like criticizing, criticizing, because everybody just wants to get things done right now. And I have to say that I think the politicians have done a great job in B.C., and in Ottawa right now of kind of working together to get things done uh, and the opposition raising some interesting and good points on this matter as well. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, every night at 7, I pause what I'm doing for a moment. I go and I listen outside because that is when so many people participate in this 7 p.m. cheer for hospital workers. And it's just a nice moment to share that with your neighbors and your community to know that, yes, okay, we are all truly in this together. And you can kind of feel it when you hear all that noise in your neighborhood. Uh, Let's talk to Nikki Reitmeyer more about that this morning. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, last night in the West End, like the night before, like the night before, the night before that, this is what it sounded like for the 7 p.m. cheer. I mean, these are sounds that we're all getting very, very familiar with now. People off their balconies, out their windows, banging pots and pans. It's getting louder, though. Cheering, whistling. It's getting louder, certainly in my neighborhood. I live in Kitsilano, and I've noticed over the last two weeks, like at first it was faint, and then yesterday it really felt like everybody was into it. Yeah, I live pretty close to VGH, and people have started setting off a firecracker at like 7.02, I suppose, to maybe signal the end of the cheer. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I don't mind it. It it is getting louder. I think it's growing into more neighborhoods now. But I think what that indicates is that the spirit is growing, that this community spirit is starting to spread. It's a good thing, right? Absolutely. Yeah, why why wouldn't it be? Well, leading up to something here, is that? Yes, yes, oh, I am, Simi. Okay. I'm going to tell you about not just one, but two no. letters to the editor that were sent to some of the local papers around Metro Vancouver, people complaining about the 7 no. p.m. cheer. This act of good community spirit apparently just, it just turns them right off. So I'll read the first letter for you that was sent to the Tri-City News, and it goes like this. It says... The 7 p.m. healthcare appreciation cheer is well-intended, but it's gotten out of hand. There are better ways to show our appreciation for frontline healthcare workers. What started as a one-minute cheer in my residential neighborhood, nowhere near a hospital, by the way, has now turned into a 30-minute circus slash parade of cars with horns blaring, people marching and cheering, some with flags or musical instruments. Heaven the letter forbid. goes on to say... <laughs> 
there are, these are scary times, and I've already lost family in the U.S. due to the virus. To see the celebratory mood at 7 p.m. is offensive to my sensibilities. Oof! It's not a surely. <laughs> It's not a cele- celebratory mood. It is a salute. It's not like people are out there celebrating Halloween or something. They're doing it because they want people working on the front lines to know we appreciate you. This is not the equivalent of popping a champagne yeah. cork at midnight. Like We're not happy about this. Nobody wants to be in their home doing this. Well, and to be fair, though, even if we are celebrating, I'll get on with the the rest of the letter in a second, but even if we are taking a moment to celebrate some ounce of good in our day, is that such a bad thing? Do we have to feel guilty right now about feeling a little bit of joy? No. I don't think that that's true. No, we don't. we can take that moment and go, wow, you know, this is great. The community is coming together. I'm enjoying this moment. I'm happy. I'm happy to celebrate frontline healthcare workers. Okay, anyways, we're going to get on with the letter. Okay. So the letter says, uh, surely there must be a better way to show our appreciation to our frontline healthcare workers. And then it ends with, please stop the circus. There is nothing to celebrate here. But should you wish to show your appreciation, please make a donation to your local hospital and bring the peace back to my neighborhood. And that was from a woman uh, or a man. I'm, oh, I'm not entirely actually too sure in, uh, in Port Coquitlam. And there's another one you said. There is a second letter, Sydney. <laughs> uh, this one, this one was sent in to the Burnaby Now. Uh, Chris Campbell actually ended up writing an opinion piece about the letter that he received to the editor, and it says, "I hope this noise making each night for this month to acknowledge healthcare workers is over by the end of this month." I don't think it's necessary. We appreciate the hard work that they do. I shouldn't have to go out every day just to get away from this noise making. To which Chris Campbell then wrote, dude, read the room. No kidding. (laughs) Also, you don't have to go out every day. Just close your windows and your doors and you won't hear anything. Like, what's the big deal? Turn up the TV. Yeah, to be fair, you know, some nights I participate in it. You know, I'll get out there and I'll cheer a little bit. Other nights, yeah, okay, maybe I'm sitting in front of the TV. And then, you know, by about 7.01, you go... Oh, that's what that noise is yes. outside. You, know, you can only faintly really hear it over the TV anyways yes. if your windows are closed. Uh, I think I was in the bathtub the other night, and all of a sudden the dogs came running into the bathroom looking at me going, like, are you going to do something about this? I thought, what are you guys on about? Oh, it's 7 right. o'clock. Okay, okay. But you can't even really hear it all the time, even if you're inside your house. And I live in an apartment with some pretty crummy old windows, and I, you know, just, I don't even hear it all the time. It's just that there's always somebody there's always somebody out there who finds something to complain about right and there's the people who will look for the good thing or the happy thing who want who have you know embraced this as a nice community minded thing to do and there's people who I get who are just going to be unhappy no matter what you do nikki if we didn't do anything to salute our healthcare workers these might be the same people who would complain oh nobody cares right like what are we doing to help our yeah. healthcare workers and I do agree with that letter writer from Port Coquitlam who said, you know, if you want to show appreciation, then make a donation to your local hospital. A great idea. Absolutely. Make a donation to your local hospital. But on top of that, if you don't have the financial means right now to celebrate your healthcare workers or show your respect to healthcare workers in that way, then what else can you do? Well, you can join this, this one small moment of positivity in people's evenings. You know, I was thinking about this too. Can we compare this to 
oh, I don't know, the, the firecrackers that go off at Halloween. And no, I, again, no, I don't think we it's can't. No. Yeah, it's loud noise, but A, the spirit, the intention behind it is totally different. And it also doesn't go all through the night. It goes on for a minute or two. You know, I don't think it's this circus I, that this will, this person in, uh, in Port Coquitlam was discussing. I got to tell you, Nikki, those two letters make me want to get out my pots and pans and bang even louder. That's what my... That's a, what a 7 a.m. cheer? Should we do yes. a 7 a.m. cheer on top of it, <laughs> No, let's not start that, but I'm just saying tonight <laughs> at 7 p.m., that's what I feel like doing. Thanks for that, Nikki. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, during this time, we also like to bring you whatever kind of good story we can find. And we also try to highlight businesses out there that are contributing to the community. We know that just about everybody, I would say everybody, not even just about, everybody has been impacted by this COVID-19 situation in some way. So to talk more about some of the good that is being done out there, we're joined now by the CEO of Sunwing Airlines. It's Mark Williams. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Simi. Thank you so much for joining us here. And I know you're uh, joining us to talk about a special partnership that Sunwing is doing. Tell us about that. So um, uh, Sunwing Airlines has uh, temporarily suspended uh, our flying program because obviously people aren't um, uh, taking vacations uh, right now. We have a buy on board service uh, with meals. And uh, we looked in our kitchens and realized that uh, a bunch of the product we had was potentially going to go bad. And uh, we teamed up with Second Harvest and donated uh, 46,000 meals across Canada to, um, to people who need, need meals right now. Wow, that's a, a lot, Mark. 46,000 meals. Is this something that you hope to do on an ongoing basis? Well, we partnered with Second Harvest now, and uh, we will be doing this on an ongoing basis. Uh, and this crisis was the thing that drove us to look at this. But now that we're doing this, clearly uh, there are other times when we have meals that uh, may may go off, and we're going to be working with Second Harvest now on a on an ongoing basis. Now, Mark, how has this changed things at Sunwing? And you mentioned how nobody's traveling right now, but how have you had to adapt? Well, I mean, it's been a very difficult time to be in the aviation industry. Uh, unfortunately, um, we had to temporarily suspend operations, as I mentioned, which means we did uh, had to lay off uh, quite a few of our staff. Uh, but at, at this point, we're uh, focused on how we're going to restart the program later this summer and get back up and running again so we can give people the vacations they're all going to want uh, coming next winter. And so I know that Sunwing also jumped into action by bringing home people who weren't even your customers. How did that happen? So we were doing repatriation flights. We had about uh, 75,000 people in destination. And once we decided to stop flying people south, we went down and uh, were bringing people home. Uh, it was the prime minister, actually. Uh, I heard him at a press conference saying that there were other Canadians that were being stuck in destination. And so we thought the Canadian thing to do would be if we had empty seats on our flights to bring any non-Sunwing customers back to Canada for free if we had an empty seat. Well, that was very nice of you. That was, very, that was really good. I think this has really changed things for companies. Do you think that this going forward then has this impacted how Sunwing will operate, even if things do ever get back to kind of normal? You know, I think uh, we've always been a, a customer-focused uh, company. Uh, we've done things like that in the past, repatriation flights, helped people after hurricanes and, and brought relief uh, where needed. And I'm proud of the fact we do that. I believe our employees are appreciative of us doing that, and we're going to continue to do that going forward. Now, because you mainly fly to sun destinations then, is it going to be more difficult 
Do you think for Sunwing to get up and running again, like any thought to taking that wage subsidy program like Air Canada and WestJet? Yeah, we're looking at the wage subsidy program now. It was disenacted on uh, Saturday, the legislation, and we're studying it. And um, it's possible we'll be doing that for our employees as well. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. All right, Timmy, thank you. Thanks for having me. That's Mark Williams, president of Sunwing Airlines. So they've uh, decided to partner up with Second Harvest. They're providing meals for food programs across the country, uh, most recently providing 46,000 meals for food programs. I mean, that is amazing. Every little bit counts. And you know that for the airline industry, to tough wouldn't even begin to describe it. It's all those things that we used to take for granted, like travel, um, you know, hospitality, going out to a restaurant, going to a bar, traveling somewhere, taking a quick trip. All of that is, I think, what has been so dramatically uh, impacted. And then it kind of filters down from there. So for airlines in particular, it is going to be tough. I know we talked about after 9-11, oh, will people uh, fly again? Turns out they did. I feel like the situation is different. This has made people, I think, a little bit more nervous about crowds and about being in enclosed spaces like that. So we'll have to see. Uh, but Sunwing certainly sounds like they are hoping for the best on that. Uh, and we'll good, for, good on them for their partnership as well with Second Harvest. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, no doubt you have noticed that the buses aren't as full as they used to be. If you were a transit rider, if you have been in the last few weeks, you've seen that. Notice that about SkyTrain as well. So it's probably no surprise to hear that TransLink is losing money. Not just losing money at this point, though, hemorrhaging money. They've lost $75 million in revenue. There's been an 83% drop in ridership. We're going to talk more about this now. What can they do and what does this mean for our transit system? Jonathan Cote joins us, the mayor of New Westminster and the chair of TransLink's Mayor's Council. Good morning and thank you for being here. Well, good morning and thank you for having me on the show. Well, these are some pretty serious numbers here. Can you paint the picture for us of the, of the drop-off? Yeah, so, uh, you know, TransLink has seen all of its uh, revenue sources uh, decline because of the, the COVID-19 uh, crisis. Uh, the biggest one being uh, our, the revenue from, from transit uh, affairs, which uh, is, is, is our largest uh, revenue source. Transit ridership is down more, more than 80%. Uh, we're also very reliant upon, upon the gas tax, and, and driving is down. 60%. So uh, we are seeing our, our major revenue sources go into free fall. What does that mean for the system overall? Like how much money are we talking about? Yeah, so TransLink is uh, is currently, even with the, the cuts that we have made to, to the transit system so far, losing $2.5 million a day or $75 million a month. So uh, this is putting the, the financial viability of, of TransLink uh, in, into uh, in, into question. And uh, if we don't take uh, significant action or, or get support, uh, TransLink uh, does will face insolvency by by June. So this is incredibly uh, serious for for our transit agency, and uh, and and significant actions are, are going to have to be taken in in the next short while. Is is it possible to cut routes even more? I mean, if ridership is down by eighty three percent, do we can we cut the frequency? Yeah, so uh, both the TransLink board and uh, and the mayor's council are are having emergency week, uh, meetings uh, this uh, this week to to look at 
uh, a few different, uh, what I would say, unpleasant options to, to work at uh, deconstructing our, our transit system. Uh, you know, we, we recognize the demand is, is way down. Uh, having said that, uh, you know, there are still 75,000 workers uh, who, who are relying on, on the transit service. Uh, so these, these cuts will mean not only that, uh, that we won't have a viable transit service to, to service those, but even as we move into the recovery phase, there won't be a, a transit system uh, available when uh, when we do start to get out of this either. Are we talking about layoffs here, and has that happened yet? Yeah, so uh, we're definitely uh, starting those those discussions with uh, with with all of the unions at uh, at TransLink. Uh, the type of cuts that, that we're talking about are going to be massive and going to hit every part of the the organization at TransLink. So. Have you tried to have discussions with the province, with the federal government on this? And if so, what's been the response? Yeah, so we, we have had uh, very active discussions over, over the past two weeks with both the, the provincial and, and federal government. And we respect that uh, those level governments are under tremendous pressure because of, because of the crisis and, and have demands all over the place. Uh, having said that, we've, we've been disappointed that uh, at, at this point in time, uh, public transit is, is, has been considered a, a lower priority and, uh, and we've been advised that, uh, that no funding is, is, is available. So even though those governments have set up programs that are, are helping other industries like the airline industry, public transit has so far uh, been, been left on its own. So you're saying even things like the wage subsidy program, for instance, that wouldn't help transit, TransLink? You know, if, if it was applicable to us, it would actually be really helpful for us to be able to uh, to maintain viable uh, transit service in, in Metro Vancouver. But we've been told very clearly we do not qualify and will not get any funding from that program. Are you also concerned about post-pandemic? We, we know that, you know, ridership had been growing, growing, growing every year. People were really dependent on this system. Uh, if we make major changes, are you concerned about what happens after when it's time for recovery? Yeah, well, I, you know, certainly I'm concerned about uh, the immediate impact uh, to, to essential workers that, that need the service now. But uh, I think an even greater concern is as we move out of the health crisis and, uh, and move into uh, the economic crisis, uh, I think having a, a viable transit system and transportation system is going to be part of, part of the, re- the recovery. And I do worry the, uh, the choices and decisions being made now are actually going to hamper our region during that uh, very difficult, uh, difficult period. And that, uh, the transit service won't, uh, won't be able to, to service this, this region when it, when it does need it come that recovery time. So how soon do you think we could see the impact then of some of these decisions that are being made in terms of cuts? Yeah, well, you know, I think we're already seeing uh, cuts to to the transit system right now, and that's been happening over over the past few weeks. Uh, but it'll it'll probably be a, a month, uh, a month and a half before we really start to see uh, the full dramatic changes to 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 our system. Uh, I think in that time, uh, you know, unless we do get support from the provincial and federal government, uh, this region isn't going to recognize its transit system anymore. So you're saying it cut so badly that you're talking about cutting routes, cutting buses, service, the whole thing. Yeah, you know, we, we're going to be looking at those specific options and we want to get that out to the public as, as soon as uh, we have that information. But no doubt we are talking about entire routes uh, disappearing. We are talking about every single aspect of our transit system being affected. And so when it comes to layoffs, any idea how many people we might be talking about at this point? Yeah, so, uh, you know, certainly these are, are really difficult times for, for TransLink, and, uh, and we are engaging with, uh, with the unions on those sensible discussions. So we'll have more information as, uh, as we work through, through the details, but uh, no doubt it's going to have a, have a big impact on, on our family at TransLink, too. And Maricote, is there a, a minimum level of service, though, that you're talking about? Like, what about HandyDart? What about services like that? 
you know, all, all of the services we provide, unfortunately, uh, without uh, without support from the provincial and federal government, uh, are, are going to be impacted. So you're saying everybody's going to feel this, regardless? Regardless. I think the, the financial hit is so significant that there is no way to uh, uh, to, to not uh, not affect or, or protect uh, parts parts of our transit system. I know you're going to be having a, a bit of press conference about this later this morning as well. Is that the message right now to the province, to the federal government? Is it you've got to help us? Uh, you know, we certainly uh, recognize and, and respect the tremendous challenges that the provincial and federal government are on right now. But, uh, you know, I, I actually think this is going to be a societal question. Uh, you know, if, if Metro Vancouver and, uh, and the Greater Society feels that we need a transit system, unfortunately, now is the time to, uh, to, to let us know that because uh, right now it, it Transit has been given a lower priority in terms of in terms of the needs, and I know there are so many aspects of society that have great needs right now. Um, but uh, but we're at a critical juncture right now. All right, Mayor Cote, thank you for your time. Okay, thank you, it's Jonathan Cote, the Mayor of New Westminster. He is the chair of TransLink's Mayor's Council as well, painting a very dire picture there of the straits that our transit system finds itself in uh, layoffs are being negotiated. They're talking about major service cuts right across the board, including HandyDart, uh, because they said at its current level, it is just not sustainable. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. Uh, cutting back now will make it more difficult for them to ramp up later. And also, if you cut back, are you then crowding whatever buses they do provide at that point, thereby not respecting social distancing rules as well? It's a, it is a, a big conundrum. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, I don't know where Nikki Rittmeyer finds these stories, but she has dug up another one to tell us all about this morning. Hi, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Okay, this one comes from the Kelowna Capital News, and it's a story that I guarantee you is going to make you shake your head. So this past Saturday, mm-hmm. a local distillery in Kelowna, Forbidden Spirits Distillery, decided they were going to host their first sanitizer Saturday. And that was on April 11th. We've heard of local distilleries doing this. Yes. You know, they, they with that alcohol, exactly, that they have left over from their brewing process, uh, they or their stilling process, they turn it into hand sanitizer and they give it away to the public. It's a wonderful thing that we've seen done here. Mm-hmm. So you have... A thousand cars in a lineup. They're all waiting to get to this distillery so they can get some free hand sanitizer. And what happens, Simi? What could possibly go wrong here? Uh, I'm hoping that everybody, you know, spontaneously broke out into a sing-along. Is that what happened? They all started singing? Mm, Not quite. (laughs) They broke out into a fight. A fist fight. Broke out in the lineup. Yeah. People waiting for, I don't know if it's just the smell of alcohol made everyone go crazy, but the people in this thousand car lineup, I guess, got so frustrated after waiting a few hours to get hand sanitizer. The event was running from 12 until 5 p.m., but it got so bad, the RCMP had to step in and shut the event down at 3 p.m. You know, I, I do understand this. I do, because lining up for something that we used to just kind of take for granted can be a tense situation. Like I was telling you yesterday how I went grocery shopping on Friday and for the first time in months, I went to Costco and you kind of line up for that. And I tried to be chipper and I, th- I was trying to t- treat it like, oh, I've, you know, I've been here a million times. This is fine. But the tension of the situation and the anxiety of the situation really does start to get to you after a while. 
and I'm sure just it's it's just one of those things where it does get to people, and next thing you know, they're fighting. Yeah, but on the other hand, it was just last week we were reporting about people in Delta lining up for three hours so they could get Krispy Kreme donuts, and you didn't see any fights breaking out in the Scottsdale Mall parking lot. Mm, did they run out of Did they run out of donuts, or did they run out of hand sanitizer? <laughs> I guess. Donuts seem to be a happy thing. And that's the thing. Donuts are a happy thing. You're doing that for fun. But hand sanitizer is like, you know, I was nervous about it this morning because, you know, you know, we have these, um, the wipes here, right? The sanitizing wipes here at work. And I come in every day and I wipe everything down. Well, this morning I noticed that we're running out and then that started to make me nervous. So I can see why these people might feel a little bit nervous about that. When was the last time you even saw hand sanitizer? Did you almost get into a fist fight with our producer, Greg? Because you were so nervous about Back off, Greg. The hand sanitizer is mine. Greg and I cannot fight because we are the only two people here and that's it. So it's not going to work. But the tension, I do understand. Like, how have you found lineups? Well, to be honest with you, I, you know, I'm, I'm actually not really going out to the store very often. So when I do have to stand at a lineup, it's almost nostalgic. Oh, geez, a lineup. I haven't stood in one of these for ages. <laughs> nah, you know, it's not that big of a deal. You're going to be standing there with everybody else. You all have to get through it. And when it comes to this, you know, you're pulling up at a distillery to get some free hand sanitizer. I mean, we got to keep this in context here. You're, you're choosing to stand in this lineup. No one is forcing you to or, or drive through this lineup. And it's free. You're getting free hand sanitizer. What is there to complain about? Well, of course, you know, the typical thing that goes wrong in lineups. What caused the fight was that, I guess, that people were cutting in line. Oh, in that's cars, the worst. That is the water. worst. Yeah. Yeah. Someone cut in line, whether you're in a car waiting for hand sanitizer for three hours or whether, you know, you're standing at the ATM at the bank lineup, whatever. We can all relate to this feeling. Someone cuts in line. It makes you a bit crazy. So well, apparently that's what happened. Here. I can see why that happens, because if you're standing in line, not in your car and you're leaving those space, your social distancing, I think one of the fears you have is somebody's going to come stand in between you thinking you're not standing in a line. Well, there you go, too. So this distillery, they're going to give it another crack. They're going to try it again. Sanitizer Saturday happening this upcoming Saturday. But they said they're going to try to organize it a bit better so that ideally the RCMP doesn't have to be called and the event gets broken up early. Oh, well, these are the days that we live in. I know. Nikki, thank you so much for that. Thanks, Amy. This is what we come to, right? Fighting over free hand sanitizer. This is Mornings with Simi. We know the tourism industry is in a free fall right now, and who knows what it's going to look like when all is said and done and we try to get back to some kind of semblance of normal. So earlier in the show, we did speak with a member of the opposition in Ottawa who wants the federal government to be faster when it comes to getting financial support to businesses. And you want our next guest Uh, probably couldn't agree more. He's the president and CEO of the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada and joins us now. Good morning, Keith. Thanks so much for being here. Yes, good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. Now, let's talk about Indigenous tourism. This seems to be an area that was just kind of growing by leaps and bounds in recent years, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Uh, We, uh, as a country, and British Columbia was one of the leaders for sure in the country, Indigenous tourism was uh, outpacing the growth of tourism uh, in the sector itself. For example, The last three years, Canada was seeing, including British Columbia, significant growth in both domestic and international visitation. It grew about 14 to 15 percent. Over the same course of time, though, Indigenous tourism was roughly in a 24 to 25 percent growth, uh, uh, I guess, trajectory. So we were seeing really significant success for a number of our businesses across the country. And what do we classify as Indigenous tourism? 
Well, the, the, basically, there's three categories, but the, the, the essence is this. Uh, it's owned and operated by either an Indigenous community or an entrepreneur. It's at least 51% ownership. And so uh, on the ownership side, that's key uh, to ensure around things like authenticity. But there's a number of different experiences. There's hotels, there's restaurants, outdoor adventure, there's festivals and events. There's a variety of uh, ways that Indigenous culture is shared with visitors, both domestically and internationally. And so we see a lot of businesses that have been shaped. Uh, there's roughly 1,900 of these businesses in Canada. And there, I read a story where it was saying that Indigenous tourism feels like they have been left out of the main kind of stimulus packages and issues. Why is that? Well, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult because on one hand, what we're saying is we think in a lot of ways the federal government programming makes sense, but it's not... It's just the, the way we're executing the delivery of these programs. And so why we're left out is simply, uh, if you look at the uh, BCAP programming or the, you know, a lot of the emergency response programs for small businesses right now, it's mostly through uh, key or institutions like Export Development Canada, Business mm-hmm. Development Canada, and the major banks. And those, those for a lot of the uh, uh, business community are, would make sense. But uh, but we've been continuing to try and uh, help governments under, uh, uh, I guess, the federal government particularly understand is that our Indigenous businesses largely bank with Aboriginal financial institutions. There's a number of them across the country. Um, Canada invests, uh, has invested in the, this network through Indigenous Services Canada. But none of that stimulus resources has gone there to actually help the, the business um uh, capital access that we, we use. Most of our businesses are largely used through the AFI networks, and there's many in BC, and uh, there's been no new money introduced to that, that system. So that's right. really a missed opportunity. So you, so these companies and these businesses are kind of outside of the traditional financial system? Well, it's it, some do use. Of course, some of our businesses, I mean, they, some are very mature. Some are like well-established hotels. I mean, please, you know, I, I, I don't want to get into all the names of everything, but I mean, some of our businesses of the 1900 will use some of the banking system and, and the programs. Uh, you know, uh, I don't think that's that's fair to say all of them, but the large majority are high risk. Uh, they don't have the proper uh, banking in, uh, that would, uh, I guess, the inform financial information that would give banks uh, certainty and comfort uh, because banks are banks and they're going to use their traditional ways that they secure loans and the rest of it, regardless of what the federal government puts with it. So we're already seeing a lot of our businesses that have gone to the banks that were told that they don't qualify yet and they it's too risky. I mean, we're hearing really negative feedback already. And even though these programs have been introduced, so what we're saying is that system didn't work before. It's certainly not going to work in a crisis. And if we want to save 40,000 jobs and 1,900 businesses, we need to act right. quickly. Is there any way that the wage subsidy program could help with this? Well, I mean, that's great, but the problem is for wage subsidy, that doesn't pay the infrastructure of the businesses, it doesn't pay loans, it doesn't pay, it's good for the employees. Like, there's no question, we're not debating the, um, I think the the, wage, the employment insurance and the wage subsidy are nice provisions, but that's actually not the issue. It's a liquidity issue in our sector. We need to find ways to help businesses uh, somehow minimally cash manage. So We've taken, we've recommended specific uh, amounts and specific uh, programs to actually address what we think is going to, we can't save all 1,900 businesses. We're going to lose hundreds of businesses across the country, no matter what. Uh, so we're trying to minimize the loss so we can rebuild post-COVID. And, and right now, we don't think that uh, the current uh, uh, solutions are going are to be able to do that. Okay. And so what do you think needs to be done then to help as many businesses as possible? Well, there's two things we've been pushing for. One is we need to see what we're calling a stimulus uh, development grant. 
we have introduced a $25,000 cash injection uh, to qualified businesses. So Indigenous tourism businesses are applying to our, our national application process across the country. So we, what we're saying is we need to help at least 640 of these 1,900 businesses. And we believe $557 million has to be injected into the AFI network to help our businesses at least refinance and, and provide the right kind of lending terms to the, to the Aboriginal financial institutions. Otherwise, uh, we're just literally going to see, I think, uh, well, our, our biggest fears, eight, eight, roughly eight to 900 businesses will be gone in the next, um, we're talking the next 30 days. I mean, businesses have zero. They went from really positive to, to zero revenue, and they've got loans. Uh, staffing is an issue for sure, but the biggest challenge is the infrastructure to keep these businesses afloat. And uh, th- there is just no money coming in. And we all know we're not going to see any domestic or international visit- visitors for weeks. Yeah, I mean, sorry, months. Yeah, months, it sounds like. So ha- have you approached the federal government for this? Has there been any reaction to this from politicians? Yeah, we, we've actually, we've provided a clear, we've been actually advocating for this uh, very early on. We've been, we've had this sort of uh, out to the federal partners uh, in, for the last basically going on almost uh, three weeks now. Mm-hmm. We clarified in the document. We we submitted this presentation as uh, to the federal finance, uh, the the standing committee on finance, uh, basically uh, almost a week ago now uh, to give more clarity to this. Uh, we're hoping that there's still an opportunity for you know uh, adjustments in the way they're dealing with indigenous businesses, not just tourism, but just all indigenous businesses, because it's not just indigenous tourism that's feeling th- these challenges. But we've yet to see really anything tangible. So I think um, uh, what there are biggest challenges, the indigenous envelope is being seen as indigenous community safety. But that's and that's very important. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about access to capital and liquidity challenges. And so hmm. um, we're really needing. Uh, like there's been a lot of small business uh, investments we think which are needed, but our indigenous tourism space, anyways, needs it to run through the networks we actually use. And now, and, and we aren't most of our businesses don't use major banks uh, as it stands right now. So it's almost like you're being pigeonholed right into the uh, indigenous file as opposed to the business file, which is being given a lot of assistance. I, I, that's exactly it. We we feel like we're kind of between a rock and a hard place, and it's hard because. We think a lot of what the federal government has done has actually been quite, uh, the ideas are right. Mm-hmm. I keep coming back, it's the implementation of the execution is the challenge. I mean, we think that's like, you know, the emergency grant response uh, uh, for $40,000. I mean, that's obviously an important program for many businesses in this country. Uh, we think the business uh, credit availability program, uh, you know, EDC and BDC are backstopping uh, loans to the, through the major banks of up to $6.25 million. We get all that. We think that's great. The problem is right. our businesses don't typically use the major banks in this country. They use the FI network. And so we really just, it's its really the execution of where these are being delivered mm-hmm. is our challenge. Well, Keith, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this this morning. Yeah, I really appreciate you covering the topic. Very important for our, our communities and our industry. It's really being devastated by, by the day. It's really a sad that it's, uh, I, I just I don't mean to go on too much about this, but I will say it's hard to believe a month ago we were looking at, like we just had a record-breaking year in 2019. We were on the verge of another record-breaking year for 2020 with huge new interest from international. So it's uh, hard to believe how quickly the world can change in a month. I know, it really is. I think we all feel that. But listen, best of luck. Keep us up to date with what happens, okay? Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. That's Keith Henry, President and CEO of the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada. This is Mornings with Simi. 
So you've cleaned the closets, you've probably cleaned out all the cabinets, you've done your spring cleaning, and if you're like me, you've probably done as much baking as you've ever done in your entire life. So you thought, well, what else can I do? How about trying a little gardening? Problem is, when I checked this out uh, last week, as a matter of fact, it turns out I was too late. Seeds have been sold out on places like West Coast Seeds for a while now, and you think, okay, well, did I miss this boat? Well, there are people who want to help out with that, actually. Uh, Marie-Pierre Bilodeau has a small garden right outside where she lives in East Vancouver. And so what she's done is that she has started an informal seed bank to help bridge that gap for people who kind of want to get into this gardening thing. Uh, Let's talk to her about that. Marie-Pierre Bilodeau is with us now. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jimmy. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I thought I would try up, try gardening, right? I'd take a bit mm-hmm. of a change from baking, but this is a bit of a challenging time to, for a novice gardener to start up, don't you think? Um, yeah, but people have slowed down a lot, and that's what you need when you garden. You have to have a lot of patience. So, yeah, I think it's a great time, and it's a perfect time in the season. Oh, it is a perfect time in the season. Like, what are you doing right now in your garden? Right now, I've planted some lettuce, some kale, some, uh, those are the, the cool season crops. And uh, radishes are good right now, turnips you can start. So there's a bunch of stuff that you can do right now. Are you doing that from seed? And did you start that earlier indoors? No, I started them from seed. There's a few things like broccoli, for example, that are hard to start from seed. So it's better to use seedlings. But a lot of things are really easy to start. Like lettuce is super easy. It takes a, lot, a bit longer if you're going to start from seed than if you're starting with seedlings. Right. And so did you also hear, Marie Pierre, that people were having problem finding the seeds, though, because a lot of places online are sold out? Yeah, exactly. I did hear that. But there are some uh, community seed-sharing networks that are still available, like online, for example, uh, communityseednetwork.org. There, there are individuals out there who, who just want to share their seeds as well. So there's other resources, not just, you know, buying them. Okay, so what have you proposed starting up here? Um, for the seed bank? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, individuals, individual gardeners could potentially, you know, put up something on Craigslist or they can, you know, put up a sign in their buildings if they've got extra seeds to help other people. And if you're looking for seeds, there's, yeah, just uh, talking. Well, I guess with the physical distancing, it's kind of yes, hard. Of but course. if you go to your community garden... There's uh, always, you know, somebody who's got a community garden in the neighborhood. That's a great place to start to maybe look for signage or, you know, talk to somebody from two meters away about how to potentially get some, some seeds. There are other ways to do it. And, and actually, a lot of the local shops are still selling seeds, like some convenience stores, places that you wouldn't normally think that would be selling seeds do have them that are essential services. And what are the benefits, do you think, to doing that as opposed to buying them? Like sometimes with seeds, like real gardeners, people who do this a lot, they've Mm -hmm. been keeping back some of those good ones too, right? They know what grows. They know what would really work. Yeah, exactly. But uh, saving seeds is a really special thing to do because, uh, you know, they're not uh, genetically modified. And that's something that we're looking for, you know, in climate action. And and when we're planting gardens, we want to, you know, do what's good for the environment. So when people, you know, are individually saving their own seeds, it means you're you're kind of keeping that species going. So it's a really important thing to to be looking out for for seeds that uh, individuals have saved. And that's why when you uh, go for seeds from West Coast Seeds or Salt Spring Seeds, for example, you're sure that those are are grown in a 
you know, an ethical way. And Right. Because mm-hmm. that's the tough part, I think, for new gardeners, and I'm sure there's a lot of them out there right now, is trying to figure out like what works, like tomatoes, for example, right? Mm-hmm. There's so many different kinds, and you might grow some that aren't very successful. Like, how do you figure, what do you grow when it comes to tomatoes? Yeah, tomatoes are not the easiest to start off with as new gardeners, just so you know. It can be disappointing, so it's best. I mean, tomatoes need a lot of sun. They're hot uh, weather crops. So people think, you know, even I find the stores come out with the seedlings really early because you're really not supposed to plant uh, tomatoes so it gets really warm outside. So um, cherry tomatoes are way easier to grow than, than big That's fat true. ones. Yeah, and uh, yeah, looking for what, probably... Yeah, the seed companies like Wesco Seeds. Actually, a lot of these companies describe, you know, the how easy it is to grow something, like the, how challenging they are. Like I think Wesco Seeds actually has the sort of rating on on how hard it is to grow this. So, so you want to kind of be successful in your first year. So it's better to start with things that are easy. But tomatoes are rewarding when you do grow them. Oh, they sure are. I've done that in the past, and that actually did work out for me. And you're right, it is so rewarding to eat something that you have grown yourself. So then, Marie, what is your advice to people if they think, okay, this is a good idea, this is how I want to get my seeds? Um, Well, I think that people shouldn't be intimidated by growing things from seeds or from seedling. You know, they should just try to do whatever they can to, to just, you know, grow something because it's really empowering and it's, it's liberating. And if you can find, uh, you know, connect with other people who are growing through seed sharing, then that is even more, you know, you're more likely to succeed because you have somebody to ask, you know, questions to and stuff. And that when I first started gardening, it was great to start in a community garden because I just had no idea what I was doing and I needed some confidence and, uh, so it's it's good to just get some advice even through social media and stuff if you're questioning. Um, right. So, yeah. That's the way to do it, through social media, and you can get mm-hmm. some good gardening advice. Well, thank you so much for joining exactly. us. Thanks so much for having me. That is Marie Pierre-Bilodeau. She is uh, starting up kind of an informal seed bank to bridge the gap. Uh, there's a lot of other seed program ex- things that are on, on hold right now, and a lot of seed stores, like the ones that she mentioned there, are also sold out of some of the really popular stuff out there. So it's a great way to kind of ease your way into it. If you've got some gardening tips for us or stories you want to share, you can email me, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, as we like to do, we've got a little good news story here for you to end our show. And this has to do with personal protective equipment. That has really been in the news, such as the N95 face mask. That's the critical piece of PPE that seems to be running in short supply these days. Countries all over the world are trying to secure a supply of these N95 masks, and stockpiles have been kind of turning up as people really get concerned about this. So a local cyclist found himself in the right place at the right time. To talk more about this story, we're joined by Dave Sandover, part owner of Metropolitan floors. He managed to get a hold of some N95 masks. Good morning, Dave. Hi, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. So tell me tell me about your right place at the right time. What happened? Well, we have a group of riders that um, go out three times a week, and one of the riders is a physician in the uh, ER at VGH, and he he just was not himself that particular ride and when we had asked him about it he just said he was just dreading what was coming um, with the pandemic 
so um, when I got home that night, I was I, I have a business partner in China that had been mentioning N95 masks and that they had access to them. So I thought, hey, this is something we could do to help. Okay, and how? Um, well, uh, by donating, uh, seeing how many we could bring in and making a do- donation to VGH. So when I um, when I, I checked with with my friend who put me in contact with um, v, uh, people in uh, VGH that, that dealt with uh, the donations, um, they said they could use them. And then um, I think we got very lucky because at about the time we were able to secure two thousand masks that's when orders were coming in for all over the world. Right, so you kind of um, got it in right under the radar there. Yeah, and and it was really actually, it took about three weeks longer to get them out of China than it normally would have because of just the, the surge in demand. So you're going to have those delivered when? Uh, they were delivered at 7.30 this morning. Nice, okay, so yeah. got those to Vancouver General Hospital just because you could. That must have felt pretty good, Dave. Yeah, it did. It was kind of a small gesture, but it was, um, you know, I'm hearing in the news a lot too just about the frontline workers um, being concerned about those masks. So, um, you know, if they get I think BGH may end up sending them out to whoever needs them, and we're really happy with that. All right, so you're going to try again? You kind of get hooked uh, on doing nice things once you start doing them, right? Yeah. It, you know, I I had checked, but um, it would be almost impossible now. We still have 240 of the 2,000 um, that, that didn't make it out, so we're just working on getting that last box shipped over. Um, but... I I don't think we'll have access to them for a long time now. Well, it's I'm so glad that you were able to get that shipment over. So, Dave, thanks so much for your help. Yeah, well, it's our pleasure. Well, and we salute you. So, thank you so thank much you. for joining us. That is Dave Sandover, part owner of Metropolitan Floors. Just because they heard there might be a need, they managed to secure an order of a couple thousand N95 masks, and they delivered them this morning to Vancouver General Hospital, which, you know what, every little bit counts and helps. Uh, and I'm so glad that they were able to do that, and I'm sure VGH is happy about that as well. Like I said, if you've got a good news story for us, something somebody out in the community is doing, just to pitch in and do their part, let me know. Send me at cknw.com.